0: what is up ladies and gentlemen welcome to episode 62 of star wars beneath twin suns a massive breakdown podcast we're coming to you today on a fantastic sunday afternoon we're gonna be talking about the mandalorian chapter 19 this one's called the convert and uh man i saw some divisive opinions about this uh online before and after i watched the episode but i gotta say i watched the episode i really really enjoyed it and i think hilariously enough uh it kind of harkens back to what we said last week we were a little bit disappointed in that that we hadn't, you know, that the main story was moving along at a rapid clip, potentially too much of a rapid clip. And here we go, we've got an episode that I heard a lot of people characterize as filler. And uh and to me I was like, they got a return to form. We finally get to learn more about what's going on in the world. So I was super stoked. Uh Kutch, how do you how do you feel about the convert just first impressions?
1: Um, so I enjoyed this episode. I did. Uh it was There was a long aside in the middle for sure. Um, And I can see where that might throw some people off. Because we haven't really had a lot of that in The Mandalorian. Um, So it it is a bit of like not necessarily hitting what people's expectations are. Um, Although, you know, what we have had a lot of in The Mandalorian is asides featuring the main character um so this is less of a stretch than it could be um i, I will say that you know when the episode circles back to uh dinjarin and bokatan that my daughter did say finally uh so i i think there's probably you know some fair uh frustration to be felt for fans who just wanted mandalorian adventures and didn't want all the rest of this world building and, um, that said, I think there's probably going to be some payoff for this. I think we're going to, uh, I think this is going to circle back. I don't think they would just show us these characters and then have it not mean anything or ever come back. That's not typically how things go in the Mandalorian. No, if a character gets a focus, typically they come back, even if it's just for the finale. um, and I, Doctor Persian sure as heck got
0: a focus. Yeah, maybe, maybe arguably uh, a little more focused than even he was hoping
1: for. I, but uh, you did not seem comfortable with it. I'll say that.
0: I, I will say that I feel like a lot of the same people who were upset that the Book of Boba Fett featured two episodes of The Mandalorian are the same people who are upset that The Mandalorian featured an episode of a uh, Coruscant Nightly or something like that. Um, I personally have been the person where. I love the stuff. I love the interconnected universe. I love the stories linking between each other. I thought it was hilarious because Andor, although named Andor spends two thirds of the show, not focused on Andor and nobody had an issue with that. And you can argue, yes, it's because Andor's writing is a lot, you know, deeper. It's a different style of writing than the Mandalorian's writing is the Mandalorian is John Favreau, you know, MCU. It's not particularly deep writing. Andor's writing is extraordinarily, you know, deep writing. So it's a little bit different.
1: I would also say you probably heard a lot less protest about that with Andor because that half of the fan base probably just wrote the show off entirely after the first episode.
0: Yep. That's that's the second thing I was going to say is that Andor. I didn't miss them. Kind of. (laughs) Yeah, like kind of didn't cater to the half of the fan base that complains about the storyline jumping around. And so they didn't even watch the show at all. So they weren't complaining about it. the people who are watching Andor appreciate Andor for what it is. I appreciate Andor. I appreciate when Book of Boba Fett and Mandalorian do something like Andor, although not on the same scale.
1: So i i kind of i, I kind of want to compare it to a book series um, written by one of my favorite authors. Uh, some like fantasy novel fans may may be aware of the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. Um, very, very long, like epic fantasy novels. Um, but he like throughout different sections of the book, he sprinkles in like asides, short stories. Um, often there's going to be like a whole sort of like sub narrative that's just world building where you'll get like a two page short story in between chapters. And then it picks up again, like seven chapters later, he does another little brief aside Um, where he talks about and then at some point a lot of those characters end up popping into the main storyline or the world building that's been established there provides you some background that you need later on in the story when maybe the main characters visit that same location or encounter some of those same challenges Um, and so there's kind of a lot of value that i find in that sort of interconnected world building where we're like hey we can take a we're going to take a minute we're going to focus on some side characters and we're going to like just get to know them and their life and their part of the world a little bit and it's not going to make a lot of sense right now you know like we're reading an epic fantasy and there's a war going on and then why are we taking it aside to learn about these people who live on the other side of the world and are paddling their fishing boat across the lake i don't know but at some point it pays off. Eventually story circles around and suddenly you're like, oh, I'm glad I'm familiar with this because it would feel really weird if I wasn't It would feel jarring, but I've been set up. And so now it pays off. I think that's what's happening here. Maybe I'm just like, you know, a crazy English major. Who's like, you know, reading too much into it, but I feel like we're going to get some payoff from this. Later on in this season.
0: I would be very surprised if this if it doesn't get revisited directly in Mandalorian, I would be very, very surprised if it doesn't get revisited in Ahsoka uh, later on. We have heard hints dropped throughout episodes of The Mandalorian uh, that there is still an Imperial presence, potentially an unknown space. That could be rallying Imperials, could still be pulling some strings, uh, despite the fact that the new republic is uh in the process of decommissioning their fleet. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it would not surprise me uh if well, you know what? Let's let's just hop into the synopsis, let's right? See, I, I I don't, don't want to start spoiling stuff too soon. Um so we do start with Bo Katan and we do start with Mandalorian and Grogu. they still the Which you wouldn't uh, know down to, the to read the
1: internet about this episode. I, I, right. I came into this... that they never
0: they weren't they didn't exist. Yeah. Yes. They're down by the living waters by the mines of Mandalore. Uh, Bo-Katan is kind of just like sitting there staring into the water a little bit shell shocked. Jarn is is laying down still mostly unconscious, but fine. Right. Grogu's hanging out next to him. He, he coughs. He wakes up. Uh, of course, the first thing he says when he gets up is I have been redeemed. <laughs> yeah, doesn't really, doesn't really uh, focus too much on everything else. He's, he's kind of got a one track mind at this point in time. I will say that actually made me laugh when that's the first thing he says when he sits up. Is uh like that's literally the only thing he cares about. He's like, he nearly died. That's unimportant. Yeah. What's important is that he bathed in the waters. Yeah.
1: You know, you, you gotta respect uh someone who's got their priorities lined up. Even if you think they might be a little crazy. Uh Bo Katan uh just is like, Yep. <laughs> there's there's a there's a, a sort of a a touch of sarcasm, I think, in there, but like yeah you've been redeemed i witnessed it
0: <laughs> uh it's I, I do like that this kind of answers the question we had last week of did he fall or was he dragged so it, it turns out he did fall yeah uh that's she answers that she's like did you see anything down there we of course know she's talking about the beast mm. that she that she saw but uh he says yeah i i, I saw a chasm as i fell it was a uh, way deeper than i expected she's like well it didn't used to be that deep the seismic activity must must have opened it up because it wasn't that deep beforehand. Yeah. Um, which kind of makes sense because also she was very surprised that he that he fell into the water as well. So c- clearly she wasn't expecting it to be that deep. And this kind of lampshades that nicely. They're doing a good job with the lampshading. They are. I got to say, I feel like they've learned their lesson for the first couple of seasons. They're lampshading very well. Uh, and uh, she's like, well, did you see anything alive? And he's like, no, why? And she's like, oh, no reason. Yeah. Probably she doesn't want to, you know, she's not even 100% cer- certain what she saw, although she knows in her heart. But I feel like she's, you know, what, what would you do if you saw something that people thought had been extinct? Like you saw a dinosaur, right, in the water. And are you going to tell someone like, hey, I saw a dinosaur in the water. They're going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah sure you did. She, she's crazy. Right? Yeah. That's kind of the vibe I got from this, that she's like, how am I supposed to ever tell people? That, you know, that I saw a mythosaur down there. Uh,
1: you know, you, I, I would think if there's anyone that you could trust to believe you, it would be Din Djarin. Um, to say that he's occasionally a little naive, I think, is not unfair. <laughs> but, you know, um, she keeps it to herself. There, there's a part of me that wonders if she's thinking about those old Mandalorian prophecies about the return of the mythosaur. And she's like... Maybe I'm the one to fulfill that prophecy. Uh, Maybe if I tell Din Djarin, suddenly he goes and steals that from me unintentionally, the way he did with the Darksaber. I think I'm going to just keep this one, you know, play play it close to the armor.
0: I think at this point, Bo-Katan should just have the Darksaber back. She clearly wields it significantly better than Din Djarin does uh she has she has the you know she wants to lead a lot more than dinjarin does too that's neither here nor there but anyways yeah. they uh he fills up a little flask with water uh which is smart that's going to be his proof right it's going to be a mandalorian bath water uh people would pay good money for that on mandalorian uh ebay or craigslist or whatever <laughs> it is but they uh they depart no in bokatan's ship Jarin wants to be taken back to his ship and uh says that they can part ways she's like well you know we'd offer i'd offer you a feast so that we could celebrate but uh i doubt your helmet's gonna come off again right and he just looks at her and says this is the way and her in her defense she says this is the way back one thing that i had noticed and, I, and they do call us out her helmet has stayed on this entire time yeah when she flew them there the helmet was off since they have left the mines of mandalore the helmet has uh has stayed on she's lord shakson it up yeah
1: um now I, I did think it was great. Uh he says this is the way, she says this is the way Grogu babbles.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Which was definitely Grogu saying this is the way as well. For sure. Right. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Um And then they get uh they get hit by some tie interceptors. Yeah. It's great to see the tie interceptors again. Probably one of my favorite models of the TIE Fighter. Uh there's a lot of them. And Din Djarin's like, why, why are they attacking us? And Bokutan's like, ah, I've kind of upset uh, a great number of Imperial Warlords. Like, it it doesn't necessarily surprise me. Um, he's like, well, drop me off at the at the N one and I'll give you some support. So she allows him. I, at first I was wondering, like, is he going to rope down? I was like, oh, wait, now he has a jetpack. Yeah. He doesn't need that. I completely forgot for a period of time that he had a jetpack. But uh Bo-Katan does some fancy flying. Grogu stays with her and she does some fancy flying in between the cliffs, scraping a couple of the TIE fighters off. Um, and she's like, you know, I've, I grew up flying at these cliffs and she scrapes the cliff a little bit. She's like, well, it has been a while though. <laughs> so I, I enjoyed this whole scene. I love the dog fighting scenes that the Mandalorian has done. Yeah, uh, We talked about this, I think last week as well, but I love them so much more than what we got in the sequel. So uh, I very much enjoyed this and seeing the N1 just absolutely destroy some TIE fighters is a treat every time I see it, whether it's TIE fighters or pirate ships, snub fighters or whatever they're called. Just seeing the N1 in action is so cool. I'm, I'm really glad that they ended up using that model, uh, for, for Denjaran's ship.
1: It is a very pretty ship. Um, and, uh, yeah, we get a, we get an awesome action scene. Uh, is she, uh, she dro- when she drops him at the castle, he jumps out the back, uh, And just sort of like free falls until he gets pretty close and uses his jetpack to slow his descent. Um, Which was pretty, pretty friggin cool. It manages to get the N1 into the air just in time to avoid being mowed down um, by one of the TIE Interceptors. And uh, yeah, that's sort of... That's sort of when things uh, when when the tide turns a little bit here, at least for the moment.
0: Yeah, they are not not easily, but they are without a ton of struggle able to destroy the remaining tie interceptors. Uh, Bo Katan even gets herself one with some nifty little tricks with her ship. I love the Mandalorian ships. Uh, that might be the next Lego set that I think I'm going to pick up for myself is the Mandalorian ship because I love the the uh, whole design of it. Right, like it's it's almost a little. TIE fighter esque where it's like the center pod with two wings on either sides, but the wings are horizontal instead of vertical Great. and, uh, the ability of the wings to move and stuff like that. Oh, it's super, super cool. Uh, absolutely love it. So she does some, some fine flying. She manages to pick off the last one, but in the meantime, they see over the, over the Hills, uh, a lot of smoke and fire and explosions. And it turns out the TIE bombers have taken this opportunity to destroy her castle. Um, she is extraordinarily pissed at this as anyone would be. Uh, and she, pursues the TIE bombers, manages to destroy one of them, but Din Djarin, on the scope sees a shit ton of enemies and is like, we have to get out of here. Like this is too many, even for us, we got to go. And she gives him, or he gives her some coordinates to jump to and says, we'll be safe here. They won't find us. So they manage to escape the ties. They do point out, and this is kind of left open ended. This is way too many enemies for an Imperial warlord. Right. Yeah. And I appreciate yeah. that. I appreciate that being open ended because I too am curious. Where are all these ties coming from? But they don't answer it now, and they don't answer it later. This episode, that's something that's a mystery for future, either the future season or a future show. Uh, but yeah, they managed to jump out, and uh, and that's it for the Mandalorian part of the the Mandalorian episode until until the very end.
1: Yeah, they uh, they jumped to hyperspace, and and so do we as the viewers, uh, leaving behind the Mandalore system and uh, heading the bright center of the galaxy. Um, So we find ourselves in an extremely familiar setting. Uh, I think uh, most Star Wars fans will recognize very quickly the galaxy's opera house. Um, This is where we uh, first learned the, uh, the tale of Darth Plagius the Wise, or the tragedy, I should say, of Darth Plagius the Wise. Um, so it's fun to kind of come back to it, and we we also see a familiar face uh, from. Really, uh, was he in the? He wasn't in the first episode, but like the second episode of The Mandalorian ever, I believe. No, he he was. I think in the first episode, just briefly, Doctor Pershing, mm-hmm. um, the former Imperial scientist, uh, once served Moff Gideon, working on cloning technology. Um, we've, we've seen him here and there sprinkled throughout the Mandalorian. So his presence in season three should come as no surprise. Um, he is giving a speech on his experience with the amnesty program. Um, so like, like any good, uh, Victor, a long drawn out war. The, uh, the newly formed new Republic is looking for opportunities to, uh, to recycle some of that imperial talent in the service of their own government.
0: A very uh, pointed callback to Operation Paperclip, yeah. which was what the United States did following World War II, where they brought uh, more than 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians uh, from Nazi Germany to the United States and basically seeded them throughout uh, the government, not in a nefarious attempt to make our government Nazi, but to utilize their knowledge and their expertise uh, to further our own goals. There were a significant amount of previously Nazi scientists uh, in NASA, yeah. for example, uh, working on our rocket program. Um, but they were they were elsewhere as well. So uh, this was a not so not so shaded reference to that.
1: Yeah, in- interestingly, uh a lot of early NASA successes came out of um, bringing in those scientists. The morality of that whole thing is a whole uh, a, a rabbit hole that I don't think we want to go down.
0: Um, well, and he does bring up a point, which was a point that was used during Operation Paperclip, which is that a lot of these people uh, were not. Working for the empire necessarily because they wanted to be working for the empire. That was just the reality of their situation. Yep. Right. Like not everyone.
1: Uh, like I said, it's it's uh, it's a very messy thing yeah. to get into. the
0: The argument was made that not everyone should be expected to sacrifice their lives to um, uh, oppose an, authoritor- an author- authoritarian regime. Is is basically that like. Those people who do are heroes, but not every common person should be expected to, you know, say, no, I'm not going to be a scientist because the alternative to that was usually death. And so it was, you know, those who did uh, went above and beyond, but it was not the expectation that every human being would do that. Right. And so it was also the understanding that you would not condemn every human being who worked in the government because some of them were just. Or just scientists, right? Yeah. And they might have had nothing to do with it. Uh, so Je- that was the argument. Whether or not it's, it's right or wrong is neither here nor there. But that was the argument that they made for Operation Paperclip. And that is the clearly the argument that they're making for the amnesty program as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. just following orders has never gotten anybody out of trouble. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, and uh, the, the fact is the, the New Republic has got an amnesty program. And Dr. Pershing has uh, has been offered amnesty and uh, apparently feels pretty good about it.
0: Well, he feels pretty good about it until the end of his little speech when a bunch of socialites Mm. uh, start fawning over him. And, And this is an uncomfortable scene because you get at least the the understanding that I took from this is that a lot of those socialites were probably on the side of the Empire A few years ago. Oh, yeah. And now that the Empire has gone, they're on the side of the New Republic. Yeah. And the people who were the boots on the ground, the people in the Empire uniforms are being forced to run through this amnesty program to reintegrate into the New Republic. But the socialites themselves have basically gotten away scot-free. And they're continuing to enjoy many of the same benefits they enjoyed before. And one of the socialites even so much as says it like, oh, I don't even know who's in power anymore. That's why I try to stay out of all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they they don't they don't hold back. Uh, There's there's no subtlety (laughs) in in those engagements. Uh, Yeah. One of them's like, oh, could you imagine me running around in a uniform?
0: Yeah, it's 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 a little insulting. I feel like people one of the one of the common complaints that I saw after this episode was that they're portraying the New Republic as like bafflingly short sighted almost and they're portraying the new republic as kind of inept and like not necessarily handling the post-war situation well. And from what we saw in the sequels, that makes sense for the new republic. The new republic yeah. is unceremoniously swept aside. They have basically completely disregarded uh Leia's continued warnings that the empire is rebuilding itself, right? They would much rather stick their head in the sand and pretend like a war is not coming and they get annihilated for it, right? And I think some people were hoping that the new Republic would be portrayed more along the lines of the extended universe version of the new Republic, which is still not, not perfect, but a competent military command that is powerful and that is organized. And that's not what we saw from the sequels. And I know that disappointed people. And I I think people were hoping that that's what they were going to see from the Mandalorian. But we know from Dave Filoni's work, Dave Filoni will take material that is maybe not the best material and he will add context to it he did it in the clone wars to great success i feel like that's what we're going to see again in the mandalorian He is not going to rewrite the sequels it's not going to happen those are canon as much as people don't like them those are canon and they will remain canon unless something you know earth shattering happens and dave filoni is going to add context to that canon he is not going to try to overwrite it And so what they're doing here when they're showing that arguably the new Republic is maybe a little bit too tolerant of people who previously were part of the empire. Uh, Obviously the new Republic is having the same issues that it did before the empire, which is it's run by a bunch of vapid socialites who have the wealth and have the ability to basically slink from government to government and maintain all their control. Like that's what we're seeing. And to me, it adds good context to how was the new Republic so blindsided in the sequels? Well, because they were blind to a lot of this stuff, right? They so badly didn't want there to be another war that they were taking all these people back in and basically welcoming them in with open arms. And that may have led to their downfall.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I also, you know, the, the way I kind of view this is that it it makes a lot of sense. uh, A lot of what they're doing from, From a couple of perspectives, first off, you know, the New Republic is essentially being founded by people who've been running a rebellion for years, very few of whom have any actual governmental experience. Most of these people rose to power by fighting a guerrilla war against the empire. Those people are not necessarily qualified to run a government in time of peace, but that's what you've got. And then you've also got all of the people who are just like, you know, the socialites that we see here where they're just like, oh, we didn't support the Empire. We just, you know, we were just keeping our heads down and trying to stay alive. And we totally probably gave you some money at some point for sure.
0: We uh, just, you know, happened to stay rich while the Empire was doing its thing. Like, oh, who, who knows how that happened, right? Yeah. yeah, what a weird coincidence. And we just happened to stay rich when the New Republic took over from the Empire. And, you know, we'll just happen to stay rich when the New Republic is gone.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think there's probably a lot of, like, uh, a lot of that going on. This, this isn't, you know, one of those rebellions. This isn't the French Revolution, where they're running the guillotine for a year straight, cutting off the heads of everyone who had any money or power. Uh, right. This this is a whole different type of revolution, right? This is run by idealists who just somehow managed to come out on top. Um, and so what we get is, you know, we don't get and Rail's version of how the New Republic takes power. We get Mon Mothma's version of how the New Republic takes power. And... Force lover, uh she's an idealist. You know? Um and sometimes that doesn't work out. Uh, and we we end up with what we get here. So let's let's move on though. Let's not get let's not get too far into the weeds. Uh Pershing after managing to escape the fawning attention of these people who just want to, I'm sure, be seen. By each other. uh, Supporting this amnesty program. Takes a taxi to his new home. uh, Amnesty housing. Which is. Looks about how it sounds. In my mind. Um, We get a. a Sort of a bizarre. Interaction with a taxi
0: droid. (laughs) This made me laugh. Because it was like. Even in the Star Wars universe. You don't want to talk to the Uber driver. Yeah. (laughs) Like. Dr. Pershing is like, why, why are you talking to me? Like, just he even does a little thing like, keep, keep your eyes on the road, please. Like, turn around. Why are you, why are you looking at me? Why are you talking to me? I thought that that was just like a funny, you know, a funny interaction that mimics real life a little bit. It did. It did. It rang true.
1: Um, he walks into the courtyard. There are four residents there all wearing this, this kind of same amnesty uniforms, chatting over drinks. Uh, One calls him over. Uh, I guess they, for some reason, all have letter number designations, and I'm unclear if those are old imperial designations, if those are new amnesty program designations. I,
0: I think those are amnesty program designations. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to help them like leave the past behind. It's like, look, we're going to give you a designation so you can forget about who you were when you were officer. You know, Doctor Pershing did terrible things. Right. We're going to help you start again. You're going to be. You know, M34 or whatever it is that they, you know, they name themselves. Yeah. Amnesty the scientists, L52. And then when you move past this, you can then have a fresh start, basically. Whatever Dr. Pershing did in the past is irrelevant. You're now, you know, L52. And when you come out on the other side, you'll be so-and-so. And it's like a new start. I, I got the feeling that's what they were doing. They all go by these these, like you said, these identifiers. I thought that this was an interesting scene uh, because they, you know, they're having drinks. They're just kind of hanging out. You can see that they're pretty much free to come and go as they please. They're not really like under lock and key. They're not heavily guarded in the specific area. And even Dr. Pershing says they have like a perimeter that they have to stay in. But they're not, you know, they're not necessarily like war prisoners or anything like that. It seems like most of them are there of their own accord, like kind of voluntarily. Like they want to be part of this program. They're allowed to drink. They're allowed to talk. They even are allowed to say, uh, you know, is there anything you missed about working for the Empire? Dr. Pershing is like, whoa, whoa, hold on. We can't talk about that. They're like, no, no, not about your work, but like the rations, the cool uniforms, the travel, (laughs) you know, it's kind of like that type of thing, which I don't know. I enjoyed this little bit of banter back and forth, but, uh, you know, I'm also the type of person who, when I watch Star Trek, I love the episodes where they just like explain how the engineering team works on the warp core, right? Like it doesn't necessarily do anything for the overarching plot, but I just enjoy hearing normal people who live in the world, have discussions about living in the world.
1: Right. No, I, I agree. I agree. It makes the world feel more real because they're like, yeah, these banal details, they like, they, they sort of don't matter most of the time, but it makes, it makes it all more believable and more real. And I, I do, I do love when, when we're able to kind of get that, um get that in here. They they make a reference to the Reintegration Institute, which it sounds like is where you spend your time until you are judged safe to interact with society. Um I I can only imagine that that we might hear more about that in the future. Um it's uh but yeah, this this is a fun scene. I like they're they're talking about the ration crackers and um I I don't know it it does, it does kind of add a little bit of like a, a sort of a nice individual touch of world building
0: and uh, and Doctor Pershing recognizes his familiar face out of this crew as well, Amnity Officer G sixty eight who is the comms officer from Gideon's ship. We also recognize her, of course. She got uh, a a fair amount. They showed her face a couple of times uh, in the end of season two when we were on Gideon's ship. Um, they recognize each other. Uh, they kind of both make mention like, yeah, we, uh, we were on, we were, we worked under Gideon basically. And the other amnesty officers are like, oh man, we've heard of Gideon. What ended up happening to him? Like I heard that he, uh, you know, escaped on the way to the war tribunal and other persons like I heard they used a mind flayer on him. Uh, and G68 it's like well you know I I just I try not to think about it. I try just to think about how I can contribute to the new republic. So if there is one thing in this episode literally from this point forward I did not trust G68. <laughs> like it was oh, yeah. I don't know if it was just a little bit heavy-handed or it was her acting but I literally I was watching with my wife and a couple friends and I was like She's going to stab him right in the back. I don't know how. I don't know what's going to happen. But I was like, I don't trust her for a second. Like, Dr. Pershing, I have got the feeling that Dr. Pershing is not inherently an evil person. There were a couple of scenes in the early times where he tried to prevent them from hurting Grogu, where he tried to protect Grogu. Yeah. Where you got the feeling that he wasn't necessarily a bad person, even if the stuff he was working on was being used for bad purposes. His speech earlier on in the episode about his mother dying and about what his actual, his actual drive is to do organ cloning so that he can prevent people from dying from organ failure. Right. I believe that even if it's not necessarily, you know, hundred percent the truth, I believe that to be like his core drive. I don't think Dr. Pershing is a bad person. For some reason, I got the vibe that this girl was not a good person.
1: Yeah. uh, 100%. From the first time she looks up, you just, she, she feels shady. And that impression does not change for me uh elia kane just straight up comes across as cannot be trusted yeah
0: despite the fact that she's hanging out sharing in the camaraderie with all of her other amnesty officers uh from from viewer's perspective i was wary um from the first get-go so interestingly and i don't i don't know how true this is but there is a there's a rumor going on that this coruscant subplot was actually supposed to be the associated subplot from rangers of the new republic, which was the show that Cara mm. Dune was going to star. in. obviously when she uh, left the franchise, they scrapped that idea for a show. Supposedly Kathleen Kennedy suggested to Filoni and Favreau that they should roll the rangers of the new republic subplot into the Mandalorian. Um, so supposedly that's where this course on thing came from. Right. Mm. Um, supposedly, again, Rangers of the New Republic was also supposed to feature Rosaria Dawson as Ahsoka and potentially other people that we have come to be familiar with, you know, on on Coruscant. Um, Whether or not that is true, I don't know. That's just an internet legend. I don't know that there's an actual source for that. It does kind of make sense a little bit. If that is the case, I am even more excited for this because from what I had heard again, internet legend, that show was pretty fully fleshed out in terms of where its plot was going to go. And it was really only they you know, they put a fork in it because Gina Carano ended up doing her own thing and, and you know, left the franchise. Um, so if they can salvage yeah. that story which was supposed to be told and fold it into The Mandalorian and Ahsoka in a way that feels organic, I think I'm all for that.
1: I would agree with that. Um, I'd love to see it uh, get some time as a subplot so long as it kind of, you know, seamlessly interweaves um, with the existing stories. Um, who knows, maybe at some point they'll they'll spin it back up again if they're able to develop some more characters uh, to support it.
0: Did you get a very Andor-esque, like, again, and I don't want to compare the writing because Andor's writing is on a whole nother level. I think Andor's writing is an anomaly for Star Wars. It is incredibly good good holistically not just good for star wars like the writing is good this is more i said this earlier like john favreau style writing you know it's it's pretty on the nose it's not written you know in beautiful eloquent ways there's not going to be any gorgeous monologues like there were in andor right but i got very andor-esque vibes from this it could have been that we were just on coruscant and the architecture there is similar the lighting there is similar i got very andor-esque vibes from a lot of this stuff yeah, but I will say it it mixed. Ve- I also got very Attack of the Clones prequel era vibes like this. The version of Coruscant that we saw in Andor was the dark like interior alleys version of Coruscant. It wasn't the bright neon lights. It wasn't the highways in the sky with speeders everywhere. We saw that in this and it kind of to me felt like a connector between Andor's Coruscant and the prequels Coruscant. And I really, really appreciated it.
1: Um, I, I would say that's, that's pretty fair comparison. You know, we did, we did just spend a lot of time on Coruscant, um, with Andor. Um, and we've got here, you know, we're back on Coruscant and we've got people sneaking around people, you know, a lot of talking, a lot of personal tension. Um, we've got unclear motives. Yeah, it, it definitely, you know, and we've just kind of, you and I specifically have just finished spending a lot of time talking about Andor. Uh, and rewatching andor um and so i think i think it's pretty natural to uh to kind of harken back to that um, i don't mind it i don't mind it at all um so moving forward a little bit here um dr Pershing, or excuse me uh l52 uh gets a Uh, like a knock on his door in the middle of the night and he goes outside and there's nobody there, but he finds a tray of those yellow biscuits. He said he liked uh, mysteriously left for him. And it's, it's one of those scenes where I can't tell like what, what fully their intent was, but it feels ominous to me. Like it felt like, like to him, it was supposed to be like, oh, a nice gesture. Like somebody heard that I like these. They happened to have some. They gave them to me. That was very nice. I feel welcomed. Um, But I, as the viewer, did not feel welcomed by this scene. I felt creeped Feels out. I was just right? like, what yeah. is going on? Yeah.
0: No, I think honestly, like I think they did a good job of it. Right. Because like that is I felt like that was the intent and the intent was accurate is that it's like. It is supposed to be like, oh, yeah, someone gave him a welcome here present and they're the things he likes. But it's so ominous and it's so creepy that you can tell something's not right. Yeah. And that's good. I feel like that's that's, you know, good filmmaking at that point in time. Right. Like it would have been weird if they had played it as like, oh, look how happy he is that he got a present. Right. Like that would have actually been worse. That would have been misleading. And I feel like that would have been, you know, that would have been what the sequels did a lot of, which is like oh we're going to show you one thing and as a viewer we're going to make you believe this one thing because we're not giving you any other information to suggest otherwise right and then the truth is actually the the polar opposite but the problem with the sequels was that you as a viewer had no reason to suspect that what you were being shown was a lie because everything they were showing you was like this person is a piece of shit right they did it with uh with <laughs> with poe and his disagreement with um Oh, the war criminal mm-hmm. who used hyperspace to kill a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. Why can't, why can't I remember her name right now? Uh, the lady with the pink hair. But they all of the evidence they gave you was that lady was a jerk and incompetent, right? That's what the director chose to give you was evidence like that. But then what it turns out is that, no, they pulled the wool over your eyes. That lady is actually a really nice lady, and she's really brave. But uh. as a viewer, you feel duped because... They like they didn't explain that to you at all. So, of course, you think she's a jerk. Then it makes you feel stupid when it turns out that she's actually good. Right. You feel the way Poe feels. Yeah. The problem is, as a viewer, you don't want to feel the way Poe feels because Poe is wrong. Right. And as a viewer, you don't want to be made to feel like you're an idiot because what they do is they lambast Poe. They're like, oh, you're so stupid, Poe. You should have seen that this was coming. It's like, well, I feel like you're talking to me as the viewer and being like, oh, you're so stupid. You thought she was bad, didn't you? But she was actually good. It's like, well, everything you showed me showed that she was bad, right? So this doesn't do that. This doesn't try to pull the wool over your eyes and be like, look, everything's fine. Everything's fine. You as a viewer should not be uncomfortable at all about this situation. There's no need to be nervous. It doesn't do that, right? It films it and it shows it in such a way as like, oh, he's just gotten a present. But the music, the tone, the way the shot is done. It just makes you feel uncomfortable with the situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, we we do not, we do not ever, uh, in Star Wars need a repeat of the Holdo, Holdo. situation. Yep.
0: That was what her name yeah. was the Holdo maneuver. <laughs> Admiral Holdo. Yes. Truly one of the heroes of the New Republic. Yeah. Um, anyways,
1: where are we here? We've, uh, we've got some yellow <laughs> biscuits creepily left on a doorstep. Um, and that's that's more or less it for for we that see, evening. We kind of moved forward. See and...
0: Pershing suffering the Cyril Karn treatment <laughs> and uh, being stuck in a in a horrible place filled with cubicles, right? And I love the parallel here because we obviously just saw Andor, and we saw that Cyril was stuck in a horrible place filled with cubicles. And now here we are, the New Republic. Things are different, but the more things change, the more they stay the same.
1: I, I believe these are actually. Um, well, maybe you know, his arc, his arc cubicles. Uh, Cyril, I think though, was in sphericals.
0: Yeah, he was in a spherical, and <laughs> so that's true. They changed the main shape. The, yeah. We know that the Empire loves their spheres, they, the Death they, Star. They threw out all of the the gear
1: shaped stuff, and they've now replaced it with square shaped stuff. <laughs> yeah. Good job, New Republic. Um, yeah, they've got. He's got a bunch of data cards. He's archiving. It's clear that his new job has once they start talking, it quickly becomes clear that what he is doing has nothing to do with his expertise. Um, and, uh, his coworker is sort of like, Oh, that's like, that's too bad that, you know, like you're a, a clearly a talented scientist and and they're not using you to your full potential. And it's like, Oh no, it's fine. You know, I'm happy to happy do whatever to do I, do can. What I
0: can to help the new Republic. Yeah. A refrain that we hear multiple, multiple times. Yes. um,
1: And, uh, later on we, we pick back up with, uh, Pershing, or excuse me again, L52 and G68, uh, sightseeing, um, they've got some glowing rocket pops, uh, to enjoy, um, and you know, it it seems like it's, it's a pretty good time on Coruscant, you know, there's, there's some fun stuff happening, and, uh. It looks like he's sort of settling into his new life.
0: So did you did you catch that the carnival music that is playing behind them is like a carnival esque version of the Imperial March? It's like it's not it's not literally the Imperial March, but it is like a carnival version of the Imperial song. And my wife even remarked. She's like, this music is like really weird for this scene. (laughs) She's like, it's it doesn't make sense for what they're talking about, right? Like it's this like happy jangly, like carnival song that still somehow manages to feel like oddly ominous behind the conversation that they're having where you can tell that both of them are kind of skating around what they actually want to say. And I've got to say like, this is now, you know, the second scene where what we are being shown And what is being implied are a little bit at odds and a little bit confrontational. And it makes this entire stretch super uncomfortable to watch because you know that something isn't right. Something's not right here. Right. And I totally love this. I I like love this entire scene. They're both talking past each other on like a surface level where, you know, She's like, so how do you feel about being back? It's like, oh, you know, there's a lot of people I kind of feel insignificant. She's like, oh, it feels special for me to be back. I know what it took for me to get here, right? Mm. Is there deeper meaning to that? Maybe.
1: Yeah. Who knows?
0: Yeah. Right? Took for her to get here, to be in the position she's in. They don't really elaborate on it, which is good. Uh, And she's like, you know, I grew up on Coruscant. So much is still the same as the Coruscant I remember, but so much feels different. And she does remark, she's like, you know, I thought we were actually doing something good under the Empire. And finally Pershing opens up a little bit. He's like, you know, I do, I do miss my research sometimes. It was unfinished. It could have helped a lot of people. But the, uh, the New Republic, they're not fans of cloning. They believe right. there are ethical complications to cloning, and so they've basically forbidden it.
1: Yeah, they've essentially completely banned uh, cloning research as we'll, as we'll learn. Um... And uh the New Republic was not interested in him continuing that work. Um now it's I, I think we 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 start to finally get into the the meat of the interactions between them here. Um is, you know, G sixty eight has, you know, you know, she'd suggest that he continue it. He's like, well, you know, there are ethical concerns brought up by the New Republic. Um and she's like, you know. Following orders is what got us into trouble with the Empire in the first place. um the new Republic is struggling, and if you think your work can help them, you know isn't it your responsibility to do everything you can to help the new republic?
0: I like that false equivalency that she uses of like well, following orders is what got us into trouble, like you followed the empire's orders and look where it ended up. Yeah. do you want to just blindly follow the new Republic's orders right? And it's like, hmm. you can you can see she's manipulating him.
1: You can. Um, I, I think it's also an interesting point to make because so many, um, sort of, you know, quote unquote heroes of the, uh, rebellion or the, you know, the resistance in the, uh, the sequel mo- movies, um, frequently are rule breakers. They don't always follow orders. And, uh, I feel like it's it's an interesting kind of uh, parallel to draw. Like, hey, you know, sometimes to do something good, you've got to break the rules. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. When that excuse gets used and when it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I liked that um, we kind of get that. And then they're like, oh, but hey, look at this big rock. You know, they're like, you know they, they kind of throw these hints at us and then they immediately draw our attention to something else. I enjoy the storytelling.
0: I thought this was pretty neat. They're like, yeah, this is the only part of Coruscant's surface that can be seen uh, on the upper levels. Because the entirety of Coruscant's surface is actually uh, covered in city. I think they even refer to it as an Acumenopolis or a something, which is like yeah. a a planet where the entirety of the planet is a single city, which is what Coruscant is, which is pretty cool. Um, that is expanded on a lot more in the expanded universe. Uh, They talk about how I think in the expanding universe, there's a single park and it is the only green naturally growing vegetation on all of Coruscant. Uh, And it is basically like, it is the peak of what was the tallest mountain that ever existed. And the city has been built up so much that the only thing that remains is the peak of the mountain and the vegetation that grows on it. Uh, And it's a park and that's all it is right and it's like originally you know the mountain was like the mount everest of coruscant but because the city has risen up so much you can only see like the top rocky outcropping so in this they seemingly simplified it down to instead of being a park it's literally just the peak of the mountain and that's it yeah but i thought that was an interesting an interesting throwback
1: yeah um i i like that um It, it certainly made me stop and think and go, gosh, they must really be doing something with the atmosphere there to, uh, to allow all these people to breathe at that level. But
0: yeah, um, in the extended universe, it's actually a big problem because their, their atmosphere is basically manufactured, right? So they manufacture weather patterns and they manufacture, like they basically like ship in oxygen so people can breathe because there's not enough vegetation. Like the, the planet is an abomination. It cannot support itself naturally anymore. It cannot exist. Not only do they have to bring in food because there's no farming, but they have to bring in literally the air that they breathe. And in the extended universe, they talk about that as like, that is Coruscant's greatest weakness is that it cannot, like if it gets blockaded, it the literally the whole planet will die because they can't survive on their own.
1: It's, I mean, it's a, it's certainly, certainly an interesting, uh little factoid to kind of have in the back of your mind. And I, i It's possible that they're just adding a touch of color here to the world. Um, But you never know with Filoni when a little tiny detail might spawn an entire storyline down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, So
0: anyway, she she tricks him into trying to touch it. And obviously a little droid flies up and scares him. And she cracks up about it, which I thought was a nice scene. Um, And then we get a really uncomfortable scene in the morning where there's a parole droid that is interviewing Pershing and it's asking him these awful questions. Like, you know, the type of questions is like, why would you ever answer them truthfully if you were answering these questions? It's like, do you have feelings of violence against your coworkers or the New Republic? Have you been feeling sad or depressed? And of course he answers, you know, exactly as you should answer. And my wife was listening to this and she's like, that would be torture having to do that every day or every week. She's like, it's awful talking to robots on the phone right now. She's like, I would hate having to talk to one of them in person and answer the same yes or no questions every single day. And I was like, it really is. And in my head, I was thinking like, I could understand why you would have anger towards the new Republic if you had to do this every single morning.
1: Yeah. It's unclear if it's every morning or if it's like every week.
0: seems like every week is probably more, more likely every morning would be, would be overkill.
1: I don't think the New Republic's got the resources for that. Um, Anyways, uh, at the end of the interview, he sort of, you know, butts into the droid's kind of pre-programmed pattern and asks if he is allowed to continue his prior research uh, just on his on his own free time. And this is where the droid confirms that cloning is, in fact, forbidden by the Coruscant Accords, so it's not possible for him to continue that research. Um, and he goes back to Amnesty Housing. He's pretty, he's pretty down about this. You know, he kind of feels like he he got this ray of hope from that conversation. Um, that like, oh, maybe I could really contribute. Maybe maybe I could finally really make a difference for the for the better. Nope, you can't. Can't do it. It's illegal. Uh, so he goes back, and, and G68 sitting there in the courtyard reading. Um, and I, I found that super suspicious. I'm like, she's just sitting out there waiting for him, isn't she? She's just she's learned his pattern. She's literally waiting for him to come back. She knows that he's probably asked, and she already knew what the answer was going to be, and she's waiting right there. To push him over the edge. We don't know but she why. Does. But she successfully, does successfully, yeah.
0: He's like, "Look, you know, he's like, I've decided I wanna, I wanna continue my research. I wanna show the New Republic it can be used for good, but I need a mobile lab station to do it." He's like, "Oh, well, we can totally go get one if you're willing to go outside of the perimeter set by your parole." Uh, and he's like, "Well, hold on, now, like, if if I do that and we get caught, like, I'm gonna be sent back to the reintegration institute." And he kind of says that with a little bit of fear. It makes me think that maybe the amnesty program is like the pretty surface level like oh we're helping the empire's employees to reintegrate but the actual reintegration institute is like a much more uh probably awful place to be yeah that that's that's the vibe i got from like the fear with which he says we'd be sent back to the reintegration institute makes me think that that might be a pretty awful experience
1: sounds like a fancy name for possibly a psychological prison
0: yeah but he says you know oh i i don't i don't know if i'm if i'm willing to do that And she's like, well, you know, sleep on it. She's like, I'm willing to help you if you're willing to do it. And uh, and then she leaves him alone. She's planted the seed. And so uh, the next day, I just want to call attention here. So
1: she's sitting there reading when he walks up. Their conversation kind of dies. She doesn't go back to reading. She leaves. And I'm just like. Clearly, the only reason she was out there was so that she could have this conversation with him. Like it is just so suspicious. Um, I just, when, when she gets up and walks away after that, like she's, she's now done reading. She wasn't even really out there for that. Um, it just cemented in my mind, all of the suspiciousness that had been built up.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, the next day we revisit Pershing in his cubicle and, uh, He's basically archiving equipment, which is all set to be destroyed. And he's looking at it. He's like this equipment like this could be used like this is good equipment. And his his boss or his colleague or whoever it is, it's walking around like giving him the assignments uh, is like, yeah, maybe, but we're super far behind and we got to destroy all the stuff. So, you know, just just do it right. Like, it doesn't matter that this stuff could be used for good or this stuff could help people like we just have to destroy it because it's Imperial. And not only that, but he also slips in, you know, between the Imperial disposal yards and the decommissioning of the Alliance fleet is something that he slips in there. And it's like, man, decommissioning the Alliance fleet is probably not the best thing to be doing right now. You know, this is several years after the Empire has been destroyed. You know, things have probably settled back to be moderately normal. But doesn't it just seem like it's a bad idea to be getting rid of the Alliance fleet?
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, it definitely is an interesting move to make. Um, you know, I, the impression I had from the prequels and from the Clone Wars is that prior to the Clone Wars, the Republic itself had only a very modest uh, navy. I'm kind of getting the impression that the new republic is sort of like, oh, we need to be like the old republic. You know, we shouldn't have a big navy because it encourages warfare and we don't want to be seen as the empire sending massive fleets everywhere. Um it seems like they're trying to distance themselves a little too hard. Protesting a little too much, you know. Um
0: and trying to be the opposite of the empire so hard yeah that they are potentially making decisions that are going to hurt them in the long run the amnesty program is like the empire would never do this the empire and they even mentioned this a couple points down in the episode like oh like i'm just happy to be in the amnesty program the empire would never have done this to people they captured
1: yeah this is not how they would have handled it
0: and the amnesty program might not be the best idea uh it might be allowing people who don't have the best goals to get into positions where they shouldn't be decommissioning the fleet the empire would have never decommissioned their fleet the republic is like well we're going to decommission our fleet because the empire wouldn't have and it shows you that they're trying so hard to distance themselves from the empire that potentially they're doing some things for the appearances of it that are are maybe not the actual best for the republic itself and we can see that you know pershing is basically defeated and and the last thing the guy says to him before he leaves the colleague says is you know don't worry you're truly helping the new republic yeah Right. And like, how many times have we heard helping the new Republic, right? Coming at him from different sides. And he knows he's like, this isn't, this isn't helping anything. This is literally just archiving stuff. This isn't help. My actual work could help. And so when he goes back to the parole droid and it's asking him the questions, this time the droid says, you know, are you feeling any anger or resentment towards the new Republic? And he hesitates and the droid being a droid says, Oh, maybe, maybe you didn't hear the question. Let me ask it again. Right. (laughs) As opposed to being like, Oh, that's a red flag. (laughs)
1: Um, and, you know, he kind of gives like a hurried sort of like, no, you know, no. Um, but then he, he interrupts the droid again. Um, but now he wants to know our main objective is to help the Republic. Right. And this is one of those sort of like Socratic style questions where there's really only one right answer and you're, and you're sort of, you know, like, how do you, how do you say anything except yes? And so the droid says, yes. Yes. Um, and it's, he, he's sort of, Dr. Persian is, his is sort of falling straight into the, uh, the trap here with his line of thinking. You now he says, you know, there's that, and, and that helping the new Republic supersedes everything else. Right. And it's, it's sort of a trap, like, you know, like, well, what do you mean by helping the new Republic is, is perhaps the correct response. Like, how do you define that? But no, the, they simply give a yes or no answer. And so the answer is like, well, of course, helping the New Republic should be more important than anything else that we can do. Um. And that that leads him down uh, a line of thought that uh, takes us into the next part of the story.
0: Yeah, the... Uh... Yeah, yeah, I mean, he comes to the conclusion, right? Like it's it's funny because the the line of thought that Kane put in his head, sorry, G sixty-eight put in his head, is really the line of thought that the empire used. You do yeah. anything necessary for the empire, right? And he is kind of twisting that and just replacing the empire with the new republic, right? Like, oh, well, I can justify anything that I do if it's helping the new republic, which is the exact same justification that the empire used. For a lot of their stuff. Right. Right. Like, yeah, sometimes people have to die, but it's for the empire and the empire is the greater good. And the greater good has been something that has been used a lot in destiny, but it is almost always what the bad guys use to justify whatever atrocities they're going to commit. It's for the greater good. And the greater good always, there's always a greater good. So it doesn't matter how bad something is that you're doing. You can always put a greater good on top of that and use it to justify. And that's why they use it as the justification. So he goes to G68. He's like, look, he's like, let's go get the lab station. She's like, okay, we can do it. They change out of their amnesty uniforms. They, they put on like plain clothes, basically. Pershing has to hype himself up, basically, and like look at the mirror, and be like, it's for the New Republic. It's like, sure it is, buddy. You, t- you tell yourself that. Right? Mm-hmm. G68 is super chill and relaxed doing all this stuff. Person looks like he's about to have a heart attack this entire time or about to have a panic attack. You can tell she's done this a significant amount of time, uh, which which also kind of begs the question, like, what else has she done this for? Right. And and she she answers at least once later on when they're on the train. He's like, you know, have you done this before? She's like, of course. How do you think I got the the biscuits? Right. Which in my mind, like, cemented the idea that I was right to be concerned about those biscuits. Cause I don't trust her for anything. I don't trust her as far as I can throw her. Yeah. And now I don't trust the biscuits even. <laughs> so there is there is one kind of funny line. They they get onto a train and there's a I believe the alien is called a a Bufapel. I don't actually know how to pronounce it, uh, but it's a massive, massive wide alien. Um and they've actually been in in a number of things. There was one that was in the last Jedi, uh, that we saw actually. Right. Um, I think that's the first time we saw him, but, uh, they kind of look at, they kind of look at it. And I think, uh, G 68 says something like, uh, tongs days, huh? And to like, you know, deflect and the, and the thing just grunts and kind of looks away. So they actually have a full list of days in star Wars. Yeah. Which I didn't know. There's Zelda tongs day syntax day and then a series of others but they have like a bunch of days that are very like i don't know i guess i've never heard them said before but apparently they've been in existence since like 95 or something like that
1: yeah so so tongs day is named in honor of the tongs a species that once inhabited coruscant um Followed by Zelda, the Zells, I believe, being another species that previously inhabited Coruscant. Um the Tong were first mentioned in Canon in uh the Star Wars Build the Millennium Falcon. Um I, I believe it's a comic. Um back in twenty sixteen. That's that's when they entered, you know, new canon, essentially. Um, but in, they were an
0: old canon before that,
1: right? weren't they? They were. So in uh, in the Star Wars Legends continuity, the original Mandalorians were Tong. Um, back in the like, there was like a, a Star Wars Tales of the Jedi, unrelated to the, to the more recent Tales of the Jedi series. Uh, Sith War comic book series, um. Where the Tong were essentially the precursors of modern Mandalorian culture um so there's a whole bunch of like real real deep lore um back in there that you can dig into with them, which is just kind of funny but the the way they just sort of reference it, you know it's like Mondays, right Tong's days
0: so. I guess there's five days. It's Prime Day, Syntax Day, Tongs Day, Zel Day, and Bindu Day. Which, Bindu Day is, isn't the Bindu? The the from, Bindu was from Rebels, Rebels. but that's, yeah. that's not what it's named after. It's named after the Bindu Monks, which are a religious group, uh, supposedly the precursors to the Jedi Order on Coruscant.
1: Which uh, I think does kind of tie it back to the Bindu we encounter in Rebels, who who certainly, to me, always came across as sort of a hermit monk Mm. type of character.
0: So we could go real deep into the, (laughs) uh, was it the Galactic Prime Calendar or whatever it's called? There might be
1: a full episode uh, in that at some point.
0: Uh, I believe it is called... What is the actual Galactic Standard Calendar? That's what it's actually called. Yeah, the Galactic Standard Calendar. Yeah, what they call days are called revolutions for the most part, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, they typically refer to revolutions. Um, which you know, in in terms of a a society that travels um, the stars, makes a lot more sense to kind of talk about like, because what is a day? You know, a day is is wholly determined by the planet that you're on.
0: Oh, listen! listen to this. So they, they did the whole thing, man. They really made a full calendar, right? So there's 368 standard days in one year, right? They're divided up into standard months and standard weeks. Standard weeks are five days. Standard months are 35 days, so seven weeks. That leaves 18 days, which are considered the missing days. They're divided up into three, I guess they're called FET weeks, which are like a festival weeks. Yeah. Right. Where you don't work, and then three annual holidays. Right. <laughs> so they really they they like, they thought this whole thing out. Uh, so for example, the annual holidays would be Bunta Eve and Harvest Day, uh, which are observed on Tatooine. But the the actual holidays, those holidays that they got it, they varied depending on the locale. So they weren't the same holidays everywhere. So they would celebrate three holidays annually, but the actual holidays themselves varied depending on where you were.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It is. It's, it's, it's kind of, they, they definitely went deep on this. Um, Syntax, interestingly, is a reference to uh, Coruscant's moon, or its primary moon, Syntax 1. Um, And the length of a month just happened to correspond with a syzygy um, of its primary moon, which is to say an alignment, Um, So, basically, the the length of time it takes for a new moon um, to go through the full lunar cycle and get back to a new moon.
0: So, the long story short is that this has been an episode discussing the Galactic Standard Calendar. Yes. And why it is the way that it is.
1: I think we've all learned a lot here today, um, and we can probably just go ahead and call it quit. Oh, wait, we've got a whole half an episode of Mandalorian to talk about.
0: Oh, we're like two-thirds of the way done, so... Anyways, they they get on a train, they sneak on a train somewhat easily, actually, surprisingly somewhat easily. They get on a train. Yeah. Uh, But as you know, sneaking on a train is only the first part because there are the conductors walking around checking tickets. And in this part, the droid conductors are somewhat intimidating, kind of like kind of spooky looking conductors. Like if this was a protocol droid, you wouldn't be scared of it at all. But these droids are somewhat intimidating.
1: Somebody working on on this season is a huge Terminator fan. I'm just going to say, yeah. 100%. 100%. Like we, we've, we've got a hardcore Terminator fan working behind the scenes to drop as many uh, references as they can because that's absolutely kind of the vibe you get as they start, you know, kind of walking back down through the train and the conductor droid is just sort of stalking after them.
0: Well, so I, I didn't catch this and it's probably because I'm not familiar with the, the music well enough, but someone in the trivia on IMDb said that just before they jump off the train, there's a brief part where the music while the droid is coming towards them, the music actually shifts and mimics the Terminator soundtrack for just a brief bit before they jump on the train. I don't know if that's true. Again, it's the internet; anything could be a lie. But if it is, then that 100% goes back to what you said. Where someone on this is a brief fan, I almost guarantee it's Favreau. Favreau <laughs> loves movies like that. So does Filoni, To be totally, you know, to be totally fair, like they reference stuff all the time. Star yeah. Wars was a film built on references. And so it makes sense that Felony and Favreau would do the same things. And in this case, it definitely does seem like there's Terminator references uh, abounding in season three.
1: Yeah, which which I got to be honest, sort of makes me wonder what's in store for us later. Um, Jaws references. I, well, you know, with with the Dark Troopers, uh, I kind of thought we got the, the Terminator reference out of our system. Um, I don't know what they could do. Never that would be have more, too many
0: Terminator references.
1: That would be more Terminator. In Star Wars than those dark troopers were
0: well you know Terminator has a link to Star Wars into to um, to industrial light and magic ILM Mm. because one of the first big CGI things they did in a feature release was in Terminator 2 the like liquid Terminator right and it presses through the bars of the jail cell and it like walks through it that was a huge huge shot I don't know if you've watched the light and magic documentary that's on Disney Plus if you haven't you absolutely should it's phenomenal. It's incredibly fascinating. But they talk about how much of a big deal doing that scene in CGI was. They legitimately didn't think they could do it. They didn't think it was going to work. They thought it was going to look terrible. And then when they saw the final product, they were like, holy crap, that was one of ILM's like big, big things that they were super, super proud of that they considered like an iconic, almost turning point in the push from practical effects to go into CGI.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I I, I did see. Terminator 2, not in theaters, but um, long enough ago that it was incredibly impressive. It was it was a mind blowing moment to watch, um, compared to you know what what we had in previous films for special effects. Um. So, anyways, anyways, uh, where are we here? They, yeah, you know, they they're on the train. They jump off the train because they don't have tickets. Um. And they managed to land relatively safely. Uh, how did you feel about like the views we got of Coruscant on the train, though?
0: Um, Cause we got I loved it. We were going through the industrial sector yeah. again, which obviously we're very familiar with from attack of the clones, but also from clone wars, a lot happened in the industrial sector. That was where Sidious would meet with Dooku. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an entire, what is it? Is It's a scene when Yoda, I think is hallucinating. And I want to say season six, where they get close to capturing Sidious, uh, and they don't quite manage to do it. Um, that takes place in the industrial sector. So I was I was stoked to see the industrial sector again. It's a very nice foil to Coruscant proper.
1: Isn't there something in the Lost Jedi track where Ahsoka flees through the industrial sector? Am I mm-hmm. am I imagining? No, I I don't think I'm imagining that. There was a shot that okay. they had that really just like instantly took me back to that. Um. So yeah, I don't know. I thought it was really cool to get um more more time spent on Hunt, seeing more of it. Um yeah, it was it was fun.
0: Yeah, uh, I was a little bit like, oh come on, they just landed on something soft, like they just jumped well, off of the train, they couldn't even see it, and they landed on something soft, and I was like, eh, eh, eh. Maybe not, maybe not. But you know, it was a brief scene, it didn't end up matter.
1: That did feel a little iffy.
0: But, yeah, it didn't end up mattering. So it is what it is. They could have done it any other way. That just that 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 ruffled my feathers a little bit. But uh, they they managed to make it to the Imperial shipbreaking yards. I don't know what it is. I just love shipbreaking yards. In pretty much any media, if you've got shipbreaking yards, I love it. And Andor, I love it. And this, I love it. Have you? Um,
1: why am I? Fallen Order. Have you played Fallen Order?
0: I so. Yes, I started Fallen okay. Order. So you've been in the ship breaking That's all I, I to need. Know. I need to play that game on like a lower difficulty. I can't I can't phase the like Dark Souls style combat. I just <laughs> can't do it. Having played FPS's for so long. Like I can't do the Dark Souls soul style stuff. I just can't like it's it's not fun for me. The story was awesome and I was super invested in it. But the gameplay itself just took me out of the game so hard that like I could not enjoy what I was doing. And so I ended up giving up on, I think when we got back to Kashyyyk, I got like halfway through Kashyyyk and then I just like, couldn't do it anymore. And it sucks because I want so badly to finish it off, especially with the other one coming out soon.
1: My daughter and I have started a playthrough on story mode. Um, Mm -hmm. and my rationale was like, I'm probably going to let her play some, I'm not a huge dark souls fan myself, just in terms of the style of combat. I've played a little bit enough, enough to know that it would be a very big hurdle for me to overcome like and and be able to enjoy it um and uh we've gotten a little sidetracked because cripple space program 2 came out but we're gonna probably try to finish it this summer i think and i'm really enjoying you know just the opening chapters of the story so far um but yeah and anyway i just i brought it up because of the ship breaking
0: because
1: mm-hmm. um, that was it was so
0: cool it was so cool it's, it's awesome it's it's one of my favorite settings ever if i ever make some multiplayer map of something in some game ever it's going to be set in a ship breaking yard i just i guarantee it it's got to be because <laughs> i just think it's the coolest shit but uh yeah so i didn't actually know this The again the internet the internet may be telling lies it says that this is actually moff gideon's cruiser that they go to Did did you see anything that
1: I th- that I, like I thought there was a throwaway line in the episode. Maybe I'm drawn. Maybe I'm making that up.
0: Maybe there was because she says something along like, "Oh, I've passed it a bunch of times" or something like that. Yeah, and I didn't catch that it was Moff Gideon's cruiser, but supposedly that's what it is, or that's what it's intended to be. Um, I mean, it is a similar style light cruiser, so I guess it totally could be. I think G68 tells Pershing like, "Oh, I've passed the ship a hundred times." and Maybe she does say Gideon, and I just. Or maybe she says, like, our ship or something. I didn't catch that the first watch through. I need to watch it again and see if I do. Yeah. But, you know, according to Wikipedia, this is Gideon's ship. So... Wikipedia you know, never lies. Yeah. And, well, at this point in time, she says, you know, like, I know your name. You're Dr. Pershing. He actually doesn't know her name. He just knows her as, like, he recognizes her from the ship. Yeah. Um, I felt like what she actually said was, like, oh, I passed you in this lab a hundred times. Right.
1: I think she, I think she does what she she talk about yeah, like passing him in the hallway, and like she apologizes for never having introduced herself. Like it, it was, it was a moment that almost made me think, "Gosh, why? Maybe I shouldn't be suspecting her." It was well played. It was super well played because I, I was just like, "Man, maybe she's okay. Like maybe this this is false tension. Maybe I'm just seeing things because I've been watching too much Andor." Um. You know, maybe I'm misreading these cues. And
0: boy, they dragged it out just long enough for you to start having doubts because I felt the same way. Yeah. And it's actually incredible. Like, I, I know that this show is more limited in terms of it's like espionage than Andor is right. Just because it's more of a mainstream blockbuster. But I honestly felt like they played this 100% perfectly. They give you reason to not trust her at the beginning but then she does nothing for just long enough in the episode for you to start doubting yourself and being like, oh, maybe she's not actually a bad guy, right? And she takes him to the lab. He's like, oh, the lab's in great condition. Let me gather up everything. They hear other people moving through the ship, and she's like, oh, shit, we need to run. You know, She, she gets him out of the ship successfully. Right. Right? And at this point... <laughs> we realized that we were actually right to be suspicious of her in the first place. (laughs) So they dragged it out just long enough for you to start having doubts. And then as soon as you start having doubts, they're like, bam, Nope. She was going to betray him. Yeah. She betrays him a different way than I would have expected him to be betrayed. This was to be fair. I,
1: I assumed there was some sort of like, she was still loyal to the empire. She's still, you know, working, um, for Moff Gideon or, or for someone else. um, but then she hands him over to the New Republic. And it's clear Which, that she's isn't... premeditated this because they don't arrest her. She takes the stuff and walks over and joins them and they arrest him.
0: Which this is totally entrapment. Oh, this, is some, this is some bullshit right 100% here. 100% entrapment. Is the definition of entrapment. He would never have done this if it weren't for her convincing him to do it. Yeah. So he's on an operating table restrained by a mon calamari technician and he's trying to explain himself and the the technician's like you don't have to explain yourself g68 already submitted a report um he's the the mon calamari (laughs) is very bright and cheerful about this whole process which is hilarious he's like don't worry it's just going to be an adjustment he's like we've got a machine for you here it's called the 602 mitigator and pershing's like this is a mind flayer i know what this is this is a mind flayer he's like no 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 This is a non-invasive experimental treatment recently approved for rehabilitation. Yeah. A lot of words to say, yep, it's a clinical version of the mind flayer, which they're all scared about. He's like, we only use it at low voltages. It's therapeutic. Mm -hmm. It removes traumatic memories. You'll feel nothing but a pleasant sensation and some nice colors, right? Yeah. That's what he says. Kane's outside. There's a twilight commissioner. Very disappointed that Pershing's, uh, they call it deviancy. And he's like, "We appreciate you for alerting us to Kane's deviancy." And uh, the commissioner turns on the machine and starts to leave, and is like, "Oh, don't you want to come too?" And Kane's like, "No, i i need to uh, i need to stay here. This is my friend. Uh, I feel bad. He's relapsed, right?" Yeah. Yeah, and the commissioner's and now, like,
1: "Oh, that's the that's that's very kind of you."
0: And now we get the twist on top of the twist. Mm. I am now a hundred percent certain that she is working for Thrawn yeah or someone or someone associated with thron the question is why though cuz what she does is she turns the machine up you know they said we use it at low voltages she turns the machine up
1: yeah she cranks I that got the thing feeling to that 11 she was, like... like
0: that she was either going to kill him or she was going to wipe his mind completely like not just the memories that was what i got the feeling was pershing clearly is in pain now uh undergoing this procedure um so i get the feeling that she is a double agent for that she sure. is not working for the New Republic the way it appeared she was working for the New Republic, that she is finding Imperials who have knowledge that could potentially be dangerous in some way to whoever she's working for. I think it's Thrawn. And she is either eliminating them or she's convincing them to work for her. I think what happened was she wanted to convince Pershing to work for her, but she saw that Pershing actually wasn't the type of person who wanted to do that, that Pershing actually did want to help the New Republic. And so she's like, all right, well, we've got to get rid of his knowledge. We have to make sure his knowledge doesn't fall into the New Republic's hands. Yeah. That's kind of what I got out of it.
1: Yeah. I, you know, he, he definitely is privy to a lot of uh, information that if, if they had bothered to extract from him, you know, they might perhaps get some insight into some, some plots going on. And, and whoever Moff Gideon is working for, um, which I think is sort of suggested to potentially have been thrown um you know we we can't have those secrets getting out uh so she makes sure you know i I think it's pretty safe to to say that the mind flare I, the six o two mitigator wait names, names in this episode names in this episode are tough um is not meant to be used at that level, so uh it seems unlikely that doctor Pershing is gonna come out uh with his faculties intact
0: and uh yeah I mean I'm definitely getting the feeling that, that she's working for whoever Gideon was working for which I'm 90% certain is Thrawn what
1: a, a fantastic twist would it be for Thrawn to show up toward the end of this series not even as like the main antagonist but just like in the background, having been pulling the strings the whole time. Like Well, he's the he's the Thanos I, of That's exactly who I'm thinking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So he's there. He sent Loki, you know, Moff Gideon is Loki and Thrawn is Thanos. And you know why I'm further a hundred percent certain? So, you know, Paul Thassie said something online to so like he hopes that they don't try to explain the cloning story about Palpatine through the Mandalorian. I'm on the opposite side of the fence. I a hundred percent want an explanation for that cloning stuff yeah because his thing was like well it was a terrible call to use that in the sequels it actually wasn't one of the best storylines of the new republic in the extend in the expanded universe is the cloning story that they have that was the whole basis for everything that happened after the original empire fell was the cloning stuff and in bad batch we've got mount tannis right in the expanded universe mount tannis was where Thrawn had his cloning facilities at right So in the Bad Batch, we've now got Mount Tannis that's playing kind of a pivotal role. They've been showing that a lot more, right? Over here on the other side, we've got Dr. Pershing, who multiple times we've seen Dr. Pershing. We've had Snoke's theme play in the background now, right? Yeah. We know for a fact he's working on cloning and specifically cloning Force-sensitives, right? We have Gideon who was working for somebody. We have the warlord that Ahsoka defeated who was working for somebody, both of those people, it's implied, are Thrawn. In the Warlord's case, it was specifically said Thrawn. Yeah. Right. We have Bo Katan Kryze, who says this is too many Tie Fighters for a single Warlord. Right. We've got all of these disparate events that are happening, that are leading me to believe that there is something greater above them, which has not yet been named. And in my opinion, that has to be Thrawn.
1: That's uh, that's definitely where I'm leaning with this, as well. Um, from reading. Uh, the the canon novels the the new canon Thrawn novels he's fascinated with Clone Wars technology uh, he he literally collects it in his free time and frequently uses it to surprise people uh, and to to take advantage of tactics that the Empire and its its sort of contemporaries weren't prepared to deal with um, because they scrapped all of that Clone Wars stuff um, he. He, and even in the the ascendancy novels, when we've got uh, Thrawn back with his own people, he is constantly like collecting interesting technology from different groups of aliens, and then using it to further his own goals. Um, and so I. I you know, we've got cloning technology kind of making a resurgence. Like it makes a lot of sense to me. There's Clone Wars, there's a unique technology um, with interesting strategic applications. Like I gotta I gotta think that it, it makes sense for Thrawn to be behind this. Um and who else could successfully pull all of this off? You know, Thrawn's undoing has in every case always been incompetent underlings. And the force; those are the only two things that he's that he's really failed to um, be able to defeat. That, and he, he's just completely inept when it comes to managing politics. But put him in a military situation, doesn't lose um, unless one of his own people
0: fails to follow orders. And Thrawn, if you guys haven't seen Rebels, I have to encourage you to watch Rebels because so Thrawn will instantly cement himself as an iconic character for you yeah even if you have no if you've never read the novels if you've never read the expanded universe thrawn is one of the the few characters that is not a george lucas creation that is absolutely cemented in like the 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 parthenon of iconic star wars characters for me right 100 ahsoka was a dave filoni creation she's up there Grogu was a John Favreau creation. The Mandalorian, they're up there. Thrawn is absolutely at that level with the rest of them. He's a Timothy Zahn creation. Incredible character. And he's not written as one of the like Mary Sue type characters where they're literally great at everything. They have major weaknesses, but they are aware of their own weaknesses. And so they work around them as best they can. But they are able to be defeated because of those weaknesses. But the thing is, too many people try to go head to head with Thrawn in his own arena and the thing is he's not like an arrogant overconfident he is one of the characters who is like perfectly aware of his own competency and utilizes it as such yeah fantastic character the perfect person to be pulling the strings for all this the perfect person if this is phase one of the star wars universe right thrawn is the perfect person to be their thanos because he appropriately feels almost unbeatable And he's brilliant. He's a tactician, right? Yeah. Like that's, I don't know, man, there's, there's, there's been some, some expressed disappointment with like where the star Wars storylines have like kind of gone. And I feel like that viewpoint is almost a little bit too myopic, right? Like people aren't stepping back and like seeing what is being built here with all these interconnected storylines. They're too focused on the Mandalorian's core storyline. And so when we diverge for that, There's an expressed, you know, displeasure with it, right? Or like they're too focused on Book of Boba Fett storyline. So when we split off from it, there's like a displeasure, right? And Andor got away with it. I think you've said the right thing that there wasn't a huge mainstream viewership of Andor. So Andor got away with it. But I like the idea. Maybe it's because I read novels for so long, but novels always have multiple disparate storylines that converge Or diverge as needed to tell a story. Very rarely does a novel just focus on a single character's perspective from start to finish. Sometimes they do. You know, Harry Potter and stuff did that. But even Harry Potter had brief asides where it focused on other things happening. I like that type of stuff because I feel like it expands the world and it offers the potential for more story, like a a wider breadth of story, than just focusing on a single character does. Yeah. So... To me, this episode, even though it wasn't and we're not done with it, but even though it wasn't, you know, a perfect 10 out of 10 episode, I actually enjoyed this episode. Almost more than I've enjoyed the other episodes this season because we got added to it. Does that does that make sense?
1: No, it does. Yeah, I I hear where you're coming from. And I think when we've got when we have the full season out, I think this episode is going to be even better. I think it's it's probably going to be setting some groundwork and adding a lot of stuff and so we're going to be able to look back on it and just be like oh that's what was happening um you know and so i think the value of this episode uh and the the ability to enjoy it is only going to increase as we get that payoff as always i'm prepared to be proven wrong um but at this point you know it's it's down to the showrunners to uh to prove us wrong by having no payoff and no follow up which Seems like it'd be crazy uh, for that to happen. So, yeah, I, I think what they've done here is they've taken, taken some time away from the main action. And they've kind of given us a little, a little Andor-esque uh, backstory. Um, saying, oh, hey, you remember these people whose faces got, you've been shown a ton? Who are very clearly familiar, even if you can't immediately place them? Here's what's happened to them all. Um, as for Moff Gideon, well, we aren't sure exactly what happened to him. Thought thought he was executed by a war tribunal. Maybe he escaped. It's really hard to say. Hmm. Doesn't seem suspicious. Don't worry about it too much. Let's move on. Uh, oh, why is this former officer frying one of her former compatriots brains? Hard to say. Couldn't possibly be important. Back to the main storyline. And I'm just like, yep. <laughs> there's there's going to be some great payoff for this. I can't wait for it.
0: 100%. I had
1: a lot of fun. I
0: enjoyed this. Although I guess we should talk about the final uh, scene because we we jump back to the main storyline. And that takes the us Mandalorian. Back. Who could people be upset? I was going to say that. Too, you know, yeah, that takes us right. They back should to honestly, it. they should be happy because if this were anything like week one, all we would have gotten was the first part with the Mandalorian and the last part with the Mandalorian. They would have squished this together. That would have been <laughs> one minute episode. And that's what we would have gotten. So I'm happy that we got the 30 minutes in between, which was on Coruscant, but the N1 and uh Bo-Katan starfighter exit hyperspace above the planet that we so far do not know the name of where the children of the watch are based. Uh, yes. Planet of the dragon yes, thrills, the dinosaur dragon turtles. And Jarn explains, you know, this is where our people survive in exile. And Kreeze is like, Oh, they still live by the old ways. And uh, Jarn's like, yeah. And also I recommend you keep your helmet on for the meeting. Uh, and yeah. she doesn't say anything <laughs> bad about. Her. So this is now twice we've made mention of her continuing to keep her helmet on. They land on the banks. They all exit. They're greeted by Paz Vizsla, of course. We we all recognize him from seasons one and two. He is voiced by John Favreau, uh, although he is uncredited in that role. The human who plays Paz Vizsla is actually the bar brawler from the first episode of The Mandalorian uh, that Din Djarin beats up in the brawl on the frozen ice planet.
1: So I I'm not I'm not great at like analyzing sound and like, especially a helmet that's going through or a voice, excuse me. That's like going through a helmet and stuff. But I I've seen some rumblings uh, online that this is not the same voice actor portraying pause Visley in this scene that this, this is in fact somebody different. It may in fact be um, the actual body actor as well. Portraying that now somebody on IMDB said it's Neil deGrasse Tyson, which is obviously not. <laughs> um, so I've I already reported that trivia is clearly false, but um, but it's it, it sounds like it might actually be the
0: um, the physical actor uh, doing the voice. I don't think so. Now, I think it's still it, so, it sounds like John Favreau. Yeah, it sounds like John Favreau. Okay. Um,
1: well, that's that's I, I've seen not only on IMDb but also I've seen some articles published other places saying that the voice actor has changed it, for Pazvaz. Hmm,
0: that would be interesting. I
1: and theorizing. That the reason is that they might he might take his helmet off somewhere later in the season and they don't want to have to deal with the voice
0: mm, being an let's issue let's
1: see uh i don't know i think like i said this is something i stumbled on right before we decided so to record so i didn't really have time to Wikipedia
0: dig into it. says it's still voiced by john favreau it is physically portrayed by tate fletcher the reason being favreau previously voiced pre-vizsla and the Clone Wars. Right. And this is his direct descendant. And, and
1: it's previously reported and Andy's he's voiced yeah. pause this whole time. Um,
0: yeah, it says it's still so I think probably the reason is is that they're not crediting John Favreau on the show as his voice actor. And they are crediting Tate Fletcher or whatever as his actor, but I'm pretty sure that it's still John Favreau doing the doing the voice work for him. because
1: um, I I didn't I didn't feel like his voice was noticeable. No, it different sounds like him. He, me, has an, but... he has an
0: inflection to his voice when he talks. There's a very John Favreau-esque way of talking. So we'll, we'll, we'll research that. We'll, we'll put a pin in that. and We'll research it. But regardless, Paz Vizsla blocks the entry, says, you're an, you're an apostate. You can't come in here. He's like, ah, but actually I bathed in the minds of Mandalore. And Vizsla's like, that's not possible. And Jarn says, no, it's a, it's a lie. Mandalore is, un, is not uninhabitable and it is not cursed. And even Bo-Katan says, uh, yeah, I was there. Uh, I was with him. The Paz is like, all right, we'll see about that. We'll, we'll take you to the armor, right? So he gives the water to the armor. She dumps it into like a basin that she has. And the water does some weird mystical shimmer that it gets, which I guess is like the Beskar in the water or something like that. But either way, she knows for a fact that it's from the Mines of Mandalore. Those, those Mandalorian bath salts. Which I... You know, a scene that I thought was really funny in this is Din Djarin's like, I bathed in the waters of Mandalore and Bo-Katan's like, it's true. He fell in and I rescued him. And yeah, <laughs> Din Djarin like looks at her through the mask. And in my head, I was like, he's definitely like, you bitch, why would you say that? Like, you could have just said, yeah, I saw him bathe. <laughs> you didn't need to say that I fell in and you rescued me. There was no need for that.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's is good fun. Good fun watching them they they they're such good like i don't i don't i don't want to call them frenemies but they kind of are frenemies you know they they've got that sort of friendly rivalry going where like they get along but they also don't get along i don't know i it's 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 i really enjoy watching the two of them interact on screen now. yeah
0: it's uh it is good it, it is good you you describe it well right like they're a little bit rivals but at the same time they're on the same side You know, it's like a friendly competition between the two of them.
1: Yeah, there's a mutual respect that they've developed for each other. While at the same time, not necessarily like, I don't think that they would choose to be friends, but they've kind of been thrown together by fate. And now they sort of are friends. Mm But I don't think either of them would like wants to entirely admit that.
0: And there's a uh, there's a there's a fantastic scene here at the end now. So the, the whole keeping her helmet on thing comes full circle. When the the armor looks at Bo-Katan is like, oh, by the way, you are also redeemed because you jumped in and rescued him. Like, you bathed in the waters yeah. of Mandalore. You were also redeemed. And Kreese is like, well, you know, I'm not a believer. And she's like, okay, but did you bathe in the waters? And she was like, yeah. And then she's like, okay, well, have you removed your helmet since then? And she's like, no. And she's like, this is the way. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. all right. <laughs> yeah. so.
1: then, Then by Creed, you are... Mandalorian does
0: say the thing she's like look you don't have to stay like you can leave Like, we're not going to force you to stay here you can leave whenever you want but until then you are one of us and there's a nice shot of the mythosaur uh, sigil up on the wall too yeah yeah lots of seeds being
1: planted in these early episodes um I I feel like the ending to this season is getting built up in my head Uh, I, I can only hope that the payoff justifies the buildup, but Mandalorian has not been a show to let us down so far.
0: Well, that's it. So we've actually gone pretty long on this episode, which I'm impressed with. I guess it's the first hour long episode we've had for a while. So it makes sense that we would go long on it. Um, so I've got to run, but before we do that, I think we should go ahead and grade this episode. Uh, this is a weird place for me because like writing wise, not necessarily a super, super strong episode. Uh, but the way it played out, the way it was set up, the way it was shot, the, the music in particular and the and the background was used very, very effectively to set up the different scenes and the different feelings. This is the type of Star Wars that I love. I love Star Wars that tells multiple stories. I love Star Wars that maybe it's not the best, maybe it's not andor levels of quality writing, but I had a great time watching this, a super great time watching it. Like more, this is the type of Star Wars I love, right? It's fun to watch, even if it's not a masterpiece. It's fun to watch, and I, I judge Star is, Wars a lot based on how much fun I have watching it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great place to come from when when grading a Star Wars uh, TV show, especially. Let me let me put a number on it, and I, I'm curious to see how you feel. So, I the number I want to put is
0: eight point five. Was hundred percent the number I was going to put too. I don't think it's a good enough episode to be a nine. I think it's a super, super fun episode, and I enjoyed yeah. it. I enjoyed it more than most. I actually enjoyed this episode, I think, more. Like this is probably the most I've enjoyed an episode this season. So I think 8.5 is right on. Yeah, I I feel good about that. I I've been puzzling over
1: that number as we've talked about it. And that's kind of where I settled for for a lot of similar reasons. You know, it didn't blow me away. I don't feel like at any point, I'm going to say this was the best episode of this season, or this is even in contention for the best episode of the season, but does some cool stuff. It expands on the Star Wars universe in interesting ways, um, and it was fun.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, ended, it started on a high note, and it ended on a high note, mm-hmm. um, and it, it dropped a ton of seeds that I, I'm super excited now to watch the rest of the series because of this episode. So, like, what, you know, I, I can't, ask, the only things more I could ask for, I think, would be, you know, even more good writing. Like, it may maybe a little more, I I don't know, it's it's almost inde, indefinable exactly what it is that would put it over the top for me.
0: I think the interactions between Kane and Pershing, yeah. I would have maybe, like... Maybe a little bit more subtlety in the writing, right? Like, I think we could have gotten to the same area we were at without it being quite so, like, mustache twirlingly, like, evil on Kane's part, you know? Like, I I could have maybe dealt with a little bit more subtlety. Um, That's probably the thing that I would say was, like, you know, the only real complaint that I had could have... shoot i don't know the, the i mean the only kind of really it you know honestly
1: i i did feel like some of the coruscant visual effects weren't great
0: weren't up to par and so there
1: i'm yeah there's definitely a half a point i think at least that i got a knockoff there it, a lot of it was pretty brief so you're, you know i can kind of like just gloss over it and it didn't really break me out of the story but it was enough that i noticed it on the
0: first watch to three. be honest you're taking off a half point for the terminator thing aren't you I'm actually not this time.
1: Because <laughs> this time it was subtle. This time yeah. it wasn't like thrown in my face. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and I I like the Terminator. It's just it's just not what I expect. But maybe they've you know, now I'm sort of expecting the Terminator in this season, and so maybe I'll I'll forgive it more going forward. Yeah.
0: No, I really liked it. I had a ton of fun. I'm happy Bo Katan is uh I feel like I alternatively call her Bo Katan and Bo Katan and I have no actual <laughs> like consistency to it, but I'm really happy that she's back in the fold. I'm happy that Din Djarin has been, you know, reintroduced. There's a, there's a whole thing that like, I don't, I don't love like inter ally conflict a ton. I don't generally think it's an interesting dynamic, especially when it gets dragged out. So I'm like happy to see him working with the Mandalorians again. Um, There are certain shows that like, And again, I almost guarantee this is because I'm like, I'm a TNG. Like, that's what I grew up on is Star Trek The Next Generation. There was very little inter-ally conflict on The Next Generation. The crew itself was always very tight-knit. They always worked together. Yeah. And it's been said by writers on TNG that it was one of the hardest shows to write for because so much of television relies on, like, disagreements between friends to build drama and stuff like that. Personally, I think that's lazy, and I don't really like it a ton. And so I love TNG because it was always conflict that the core group always worked together unless something weird was going on. Like one of them was being mind controlled or something. Right. So I like that TV shows like the flash, the whole thing was like them bickering with each other became a bigger story point than like the actual villains. I don't like that. I think that's like the worst example of it. Right. So it makes me happy when like the gang gets back together and they focus their efforts on an external threat instead of like bickering with each other. You know,
1: Yeah, you know, that's one of those things where I think it can work in small doses and it can work well when the character's motivations and reasons are clearly and previously established. And this conflict is something that feels natural. Um, A lot of times it feels contrived.
0: You could have explained it, but you chose not to and now I'm angry at you. Yeah. Right. Like that is my least favorite of all the conflicts. Right. You're correct when it feels natural.
1: My my least favorite is when someone is clearly right and someone else disagrees with them and gets mad at them, anyways. Mm-hmm. And it just is like, but you've like the the show has gone out of its way to make it clear that the, who that this whoever's in trouble clearly did the right thing and the only thing that they could have done they didn't they clearly had no choice. And someone else is super mad at them, even though they they even though they have full information. mm Hmm. And it's just, you know, it's all about how it's portrayed. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. That doesn't happen here. It does feel good. I enjoy the the friendly rivalry, but I like that it's not a full-blown conflict. Um, I'm excited to see what effect having Bo-Katan as part of the covert has. There, there's so much from this episode where I'm just like, I can't wait to see where this goes.
0: Yep. that's when that's when I know that a show has done a good job when I'm excited for the next week because I want to continue learning about what's going on. Shit, even Bad Batch has done it to me at this point in time, which is something I I did not think that I would say. So like I'm you know, I've gone from being like, oh, man, Andor was freaking awesome to now being like super excited for Wednesdays or for Thursdays. I actually technically watch them on Thursday night because that's when we have dinner with my buddy and him and his wife and myself and my wife. We all watch you know, the new Mandalorian episode to be honest, I'm like super I excited watch it for Saturdays most of the time. So. <laughs> How do you avoid spoilers for that long? That's incredible. It's real hard. Uh, yeah,
1: it's, it's real hard. I have to be real careful about Twitter notifications.
0: All right. Well, man, we have made this an hour and 45 minute episode. That is truly impressive. I have got to run. My wife yeah. is probably about to stab me. Uh, so With the darksaber, she's gonna she's gonna bo Katon me. So (laughs) uh thank you guys for tuning in and uh we'll see you next week. All right, until then, may the force be with you. And also with you.